If you're new with us, we are going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and we invite you in on that study today. Uh, if you're either watching us uh, online or you're uh, in attendance with us, uh, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're watching, you're not a Christian, uh, really glad that you would uh, come and uh, uh, join us for this study. Actually, a really great book uh, for you to consider as we consider uh, really what is uh, the nature of the gospel and w what is Christianity all about. We have a great text right in front of us. Uh, and so let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we jump into it. Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. We pray you would speak to us today. Speak to every heart that's here. May your word come alive in our hearts that we may have increasing affections for the Lord Jesus, who is himself the hero of Scripture, the Lord of glory. We pray you would give us eyes to see something of his glory today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you notice how this passage begins with the statement that we do not lose heart, chapter 4, verse 1. And then at the end of this chapter... Uh, Pastor Matt will be looking next week at uh, the, la the latter part of the chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, uh, it's, uh, it's repeated, so we do not lose heart. So this passage is all about really uh, staying encouraged in gospel ministry. And this is a relevant passage because uh, all ministry is hard. And uh, you will encounter, uh, in whatever kind of ministry you're in, some level of discouragement. Whether you're trying to be a faithful witness at work or at school, or you're caring for people in a nonprofit organization, or you're trying to uh, disciple your children as a parent, or you're working in student ministry, or you're a small group leader here at IDC, uh, you're overseas missions, uh, or you're serving as a planter or a pastor. In any case, you'll have the temptation to be discouraged. And so we need this passage. And there are many reasons for discouragement. Maybe not seeing fruit in your work. Not seeing any positive response from the people that you're trying to lead and minister to. You feel perhaps ineffective at times. You could be hurt by other people. There could be relational conflict with others. Your own failures can discourage you. You may have health issues that lead to discouragement, or you have unmet expectations that lead to discouragement, or the feeling of betrayal by those that you've tried to care for. Now, this has been a hard time for all of us in this uh, past year. We don't need to keep saying that, and, but one of the reasons I picked 2 Corinthians was because it's all about God's strength in our weakness. It's all about how God uses clay pots, as he says in verse 7 of chapter 4, for his glory. Paul uh, recounts a lot of his afflictions and his hardships in this letter, but he also highlights the all-sufficient grace of God that enables him to press on. Now, if you're in a down season, you're, you're not alone. Many great leaders throughout redemptive history have been discouraged. You don't have to read very far at all. And when you get into Exodus chapter 5, after God calls Moses to, uh, to go confront Pharaoh so all the people could be liberated, uh, Pharaoh says no. And Moses gets discouraged. Uh, and in fact, he asked the Lord, why did you ever send me? And in that passage in Exodus chapter 6, God encourages Moses with his promises. He promises basically sort of an Old Testament foreshadowing of the gospel that I will redeem these people. They, I will take them to be mine. I will give you an inheritance. And God encourages his servant 
with gospel promises. Or you take another leading figure in the Old Testament, Elijah, who basically won kind of the spiritual equivalent of the Super Bowl in 1 Kings 18 uh, with the, the, the victory at Mount Carmel, only to find Elijah in the very next chapter so discouraged that he asked the Lord to take his life. And God renews the weak clay pot that Elijah was in that moment, and he presses on, and he goes on to have more and more uh, successful ministry. One of my heroes in church history, Charles Spurgeon, whom we affectionately call the Spurge around here, suffered from a burning kidney disease. He had gout, uh, rheumatism. His wife was ill almost his entire marriage. He had all sorts of stress that took its toll on him. And at one point he says, I become so perplexed that I sink in heart and dream that it would be better for me never to have been born than to have been called to bear all this multitude upon my heart. And yet Spurgeon believed in God's sovereign purposes, and he said that he believed these afflictions actually made him a more compassionate pastor. And he also believed the Lord used them to keep him humble, something that Paul will say later in this book. Spurgeon said, those who are honored of their Lord in public have usually to endure a secret chastening or to carry a peculiar cross, lest by any means they exalt themselves and fall into the snare of the devil." Well, all of this relates to 2 Corinthians. Good news today, God uses troubled people. God strengthens weak people. God uses clay pots. Paul is writing here in the real world of ministry. He has critics. People are saying that Paul is ineffective. They're saying that his ministry is corrupt. And so he's dealing with the very th kinds of things that you would deal with in any kind of ministry with people. I think that was the biggest shock to me in my first pastorate. I was 27 years old in New Orleans, and uh, a friend of mine visited the church about week four or five, and he didn't tell another member of the church that he knew me. And so he asked, what do you think of your new pastor? <laughs> and uh, the response was, I don't know if we're going to kill him first or he's going to kill us first. It was, it was a rocky start, <laughs> as uh, one, one lady I, I keenly remember would not shake my hand because I was too young, she said. And uh, she, she came to church with a blanket, and uh, I, will, I won't say any more. But it was, it was a very difficult time. We went through Hurricane Katrina during that time and trying to pastor. I put on about 40 pounds of not muscle uh, as I was eating my way through Moose Tracks ice cream, uh, trying to cope with uh, all of the discouragement. And that's real stuff. And 2 Corinthians is like medicine for us when we're in these valleys, when we're in hard times. And so let's have a look at this chapter. I'd like to break it down in three parts today. Paul speaks in verses 1 and 2 about the nature of gospel ministry. Secondly, in verses 3 and 4, he speaks about the reasons for unbelief. And finally, in verses 5 and 6, he speaks of the reasons for belief. Okay, so first of all, the nature of gospel ministry. The first thing Paul says about gospel ministry, regardless of what kind of ministry that is, is that gospel ministry is challenging. I've already alluded to this, but notice in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, this ministry is hearkening back up to chapter 3, if you were with us last week, and you see the therefore also connecting it with the previous section. Uh, and this ministry that Paul has in mind is new covenant ministry. 
It's the ministry that centers on Jesus, that involves the, the Spirit's transforming power, this ministry that brings righteousness, this ministry uh, that has eschatological hope with it, this ministry that is transformative. Paul says, having that ministry, we do not lose heart. So apparently losing heart crossed Paul's mind. In fact, you trace the whole history of Paul with the Corinthians, and it was uh, a real temptation to lose heart. In Acts chapter 18, he's ministering in Corinth, planting the church, and the Lord appears to him in a vision to encourage him and tells him to keep going. Well, he says here, having this ministry, we do not lose heart, or translated in the CSB, I think, we do not give up. We do not despair. The word here carries the idea of, of losing one's motivation, and you can feel like that sometimes, can't you? Harris comments, Paul was determined that no opposition, no failure would cause him to relax his efforts to fulfill his God-given calling. I like that he includes failure as well. No opposition and no failure because sometimes our own failures crush us. And Paul says, having this ministry, we do not lose heart. So what, what, what keeps Paul going? What, does, what is he saying here in verse 1? Well, I like the message paraphrase. Since God has so generously let us in on what he is doing, we are not about to throw our hands up and walk off the job. In other words, Paul says the second thing about gospel ministry is that we per persevere in gospel ministry by thinking deeply on the mercy of God. I can't get over this, this opening phrase. I just love verse one. Like having this ministry, how? By the mercy of God. It's because of the mercy of God we do not lose heart. This mercy that came to us in salvation is also the mercy that has given us a ministry. Paul saw all of it as mercy. We do not deserve, A, to be rescued from our sins, and B, we don't deserve to be in on the work that God is doing in this ministry, this new covenant ministry. The old Puritans used to speak of Christians as those who are be mercied. That is, those who had received mercy. And Paul says, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. In other words, what kept Paul going was the nature of the gospel itself and the nature of ministry itself, new covenant ministry. No opposition, no failure would cause him to quit because he was aware of the mercy of God giving him the privilege of something that transcended Moses' ministry the privilege of proclaiming God's grace in Christ. What kept Paul going was not ministry success. If success is what keeps you going, then when you're unsuccessful, you're toast. It wasn't popularity that kept him going. It wasn't influence in the political arena that kept Paul going. These are weak motivations. You need a bigger engine to keep on going. And Paul says, never forget that you are here by the mercy of God. You do not deserve what you are enjoying. God alone gave you this ministry and God alone sustains you in it. And he allows the past to encourage him in the present. Paul mentions mercy all the way through his letters as he's thinking about the gift of the gospel. We today, my friends, do not deserve the grace and mercy that we enjoy in this moment. If we got what we deserved, we would be in hell right now. But what God has done has rescued us. He's liberated us. And now we get to preach the gospel. Our sins are forgiven. Christ's righteousness is ours. 
we have a conscience sprinkled clean by the blood of the Lamb. The Spirit of God is in us. Future glory awaits us. And so we do not lose heart. My friends, wake up every morning and consider the mercies of God toward you. Third thing that Paul says about gospel ministry is that it must be done with integrity. Paul basically says in verse 2, I have nothing to hide. There's no fine print. There's no bait and switch. Notice how he says it in verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. So there's some things we renounce. We make a decision to do this. And there are some things we refuse to do. And then there are some things we do commit to do. And that is, by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Regarding integrity here, Paul says that this involves renouncing disgraceful ways. He may be alluding to uh, his opponents in this letter. If you remember chapter 2, verse 17, those who are peddling the word of God. Paul says, we refuse to practice these kinds of disgraceful things. There's no funny business, Paul is saying. You know, I'm not going to, uh, you know, wipe my head with a towel and sell it for, for money and, uh, you know, say it's got holy water on it or all of those crazy things you might see on, uh, on particular television channels. Uh, there's no strange business. Paul says there's, there's nothing there to hide. And he's given us a good model again to follow. We should always be checking our motives and make sure that we serve in the sight of God. That is, recognizing that we ultimately do ministry and we live our lives before the very eyes of God. Now, he also says here that integrity involves not practicing deception, or ESV translates this as cunning. This too was, was probably an allusion uh, uh, back to the, the opponents, the super apostles uh, in Corinth, and who were, were known for sort of this manipulative dark side. And Paul says they have their own self-interest in mind, but faithful ministry uh, refuses to practice this kind of deception. And then he says, notice at the uh, third part of there, verse 2, is that it means we do not tamper with God's word. God doesn't need more orators. He needs more reporters. People who would take what God has said and declare it before a needy world. And that's my job as a preacher is to explain what God has said and to lift up Jesus Christ. So we don't tamper with God's word. We don't twist God's word. We don't uh, hide parts of God's word because we're somehow embarrassed. A ministry of integrity means that we do not tamper we don't mess with God's Word. You might recall an old Seinfeld episode to think about theology. Um, there's a scene in which uh, Kramer comes knocking at the door. In fact, he's knocking with his head because he's holding a, a board game. And he, uh, he comes in and, and he says, where can I put this? And, and Jerry says, uh, what is it? And he says, it's risk, Jerry, uh, the game of world conquest. And he puts it down and he asks Jerry if he can leave the board game sitting there. And then Newman appears. And Kramer tells Jerry that they've been playing for six hours and Newman has to leave and he doesn't trust the game at Newman's house. And so he wants a neutral place, he says, where no one will tamper with it. And uh, then he, he tells Jerry that uh, uh, you're kind of like Switzerland, <laughs> you, you know, a neutral place. And, uh, and Jerry says he doesn't want to be Switzerland. And he, he concludes by saying, Jerry, it's an epic battle and people cannot be trusted. And 
in a, in a much greater way, obviously, we are entrusted with the gospel and uh, we are involved in an epic battle and therefore we do not tamper with God's word. I love when Jesus in Mark chapter 8 tells people that uh, when he's talking about the cost of following him, about taking up your cross and following him, he adds uh, the little piece at the end in, in, uh, when he says, do not be ashamed of me nor my words. In other words, following Jesus means following his words, following what he said. And so we, we don't cut out the miracles because, well, people don't believe that stuff anymore. And we don't disown biblical ethics because it's not culturally appropriate anymore. We don't deny the exclusivity of Christ because that's offensive to some people. No, people don't need watered-down Christianity. They need thoughtful and winsome and faithful exposition. We do this in a spirit that's gracious and humble, but we are never to be ashamed of the gospel. We do not tamper with God's word. Instead, we do as Paul says here, we set forth the truth clearly. I love how he says that, that by open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. In other words, there are no secret truths that we have. We don't have holy underwear, you know, there's no secret handshakes. No, what we believe, we're very transparent about it. It's an open, public, clear declaration. And the goal is to be clear about what we believe as Christians. The goal in teaching is not for someone to think you're smart, but for sixth graders to be able to understand what you're saying. We're not after subtlety or ambiguity. We're after clarity. Open statement of the truth. That's what we do. And so this is something of the nature of gospel ministry that Paul lets us in on, his motives, his, his method. And now we get to number two, the reasons for unbelief. The objection now in verses three and four is, Paul, if your teaching is so clear, why don't more people believe it? If it's true and it's being presented clearly, what are the reasons of unbelief? And Paul gives two related reasons for unbelief. Number one, the veil. And number two, the devil. The veil. Paul says we do not veil the gospel. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Right? We do not hide it. We present it clearly. And yet, it's still not seen by everyone as it should be seen. Now, this doesn't mean the gospel isn't glorious simply because someone doesn't see it, right? So perhaps you've taken your kids before to a beautiful place, maybe the Grand Canyon or something, and you're in awe. You're taking pictures of it. It's majestic, and they're just not into it. They're like, can we go to McDonald's? And you're like, I brought you all the way out here to see the Grand Canyon, and, and you want a Happy Meal. Well, the gospel is like that. Whether or not today people see it, it's glorious. Whether or not they find it attractive and amazing, it still is. The issue is that the gospel is veiled to some people because it's veiled in some people. And again, Paul is saying here, it's not a problem of the truthfulness of the gospel. It's not a problem of a clear proclamation of the gospel. The problem is a blindness, a spiritual blockage and sadly, he says, some are perishing because of it. Remember, he uses that phrase back in chapter 2 about those who are, who are perishing. Only two groups of people 
that forgiven, those who have life and those who are perishing. And so I think as we think about this, we think about people on our minds, we pray, don't we, for the veil to be removed, for people to see and believe. We would set, the forth, set forth the, the truth clearly and that God would remove the blindness. Notice verse 4, he ties this to the work of the devil when he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. This is why he says people don't believe. There is a devil. There are more actors in the world than just what we see with our naked eye. Satan is at work. He's called in 1 John 5, 19, uh, John says the whole unbelieving world lies in the power of the evil one. And we've already seen Satan described in chapter 2, verse 11 as, as working in the midst of uh, people to keep them from practicing forgiveness. Earlier in 1 Corinthians, the devil was involved in, uh, as Paul talks about church discipline, handing people over to Satan. We see later in 2 Corinthians 11, he masquerades as an angel of light. And then Paul, at the end of the book, says that his thorn in the flesh is attributed to Satan. And now we see Satan's involvement in regard to the preaching of the gospel. And so what Paul is describing here is expository warfare. It is teaching, explaining, proclaiming the good news of the gospel in Christ Jesus, but knowing all the while warfare is happening when that's happening, whether you're teaching your kids or leading a Bible study or doing campus ministry of some kind, we should never forget we are at war. You remember as, as Jesus is talking about uh, the, the, the parable of the four soils, how one of the things that happens in, in, in a heart is that Satan can snatch away the word. And so there's always warfare when it comes to people listening to the gospel, hearing the gospel. And Satan wants people... He wants to prevent people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Notice here how the gospel is, is being described here as being about the glory of Christ. So the gospel is not preached if Christ is not preached. And the gospel is the proclamation of the glory of Christ. That is his person, his work, his coming. And this idea of glory also harkens back to the Old Testament how uh, the glory of God manifested his, he manifested his presence in appearing in glory to Moses. And likewise, in a much greater way, Jesus is the manifestation of God's presence. In other words, he says, our unbelieving friends, and we previously did not see really who Jesus is. And so I think there are a couple of applications to take away from verses 3 and 4. Number 1. This should give us a deep compassion for our unbelieving friends. We were once there, blinded to glory, not seeing who Jesus really is. And the second application is this should move us to pray for God to intervene, for God to do what we're going to look at in verse 6, to shine light into their hearts, to see Christ for who he really is. Those are the reasons, he says, for unbelief. Finally, the reasons for belief. Paul gives two reasons for people's belief in the gospel. Number one, he says, the message. The message is Christ, not us. And number two, the illuminator. God, not us. 
If anyone is going to become a Christian, it's because they hear the message of Jesus Christ. And if anyone's going to become a Christian, it's because God intervenes and shines light into their otherwise darkened heart and enables them to see who Christ is. So verse 5, the message here. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. One writer says, it would be hard to describe Christian ministry in so few words. Verse 5 is such a wonderful summary of what we're all about. Now, I want you to notice something of the logic here in verses 4 to 6. In verse 4, we just looked at, some people are blinded to the glory of Christ. In verse 6, some people see the glory of Christ. Well, what happens for verse 6 to happen? Well, verse 5 People see because of proclamation. Apart from proclamation, they don't see. So the means of transformation is through the proclamation of the gospel. This is just basic Christianity, right? See this in many, many places. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So let this be a reminder to you, church, that we must speak the good news. We are heraldic people. We announce the good news and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's Christ, and it's not us. We do not preach ourselves, he says. Now, again, probably combating the, 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 the street preachers in Corinth, these super apostles who were known for being uh, very eloquent orators with a focus on themselves. And, and Jesus says, no, we do not preach, our, or Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ. Even though Paul was eloquent, even though Paul had the equivalent of like two PhDs, the message is simple, and it's a good reminder for all of us today. You may have a PhD or a GED, but you're still preaching the same thing. You may have a degree from Duke or a degree from YouTube, but we're still preaching Jesus Christ as Lord. Some of you have those YouTube degrees, I know. That's fine. We, we're in it together, aren't we? What we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord. That's the basic confession of the early church. Jesus is Lord, the crucified Christ who rose and reigns over all things is the exalted Lord. We are his servants. He is the master. He must decrease or increase. We must decrease. Christ must stay in the foreground. We stay in the background. And God, by his spirit, works graciously in some people's hearts so that they see Christ for who he is when Christ is proclaimed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. That the spirit of God is at work when Christ is declared and some people believe. So I just want to give you a, a, an exhortation here, church, to be faithful, to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ especially in the springtime, because I don't know if it's true in your world, but in my world, I see more people in the springtime. More people are out. People are at Home Depot like crazy. It's like a big party over there, and everybody's working on their yard and, and all of that, um, and that's wonderful, and I love the springtime. And let's find opportunities this springtime. We're not spring yet, but we're, we're, we're trying to get there, aren't we? To, to let people know about the good news of Jesus Christ. Finally, the illuminator. Why do people believe? Because God shines the light in their hearts. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So here's the question. 
What hope do we have in presenting the gospel? What kind of confidence can we have? Especially if you know how certain people might respond to you sharing the gospel with them. This verse gives us great confidence because it's ultimately not about us, but about God who speaks and the darkness is overcome. God can do that in the hardest of hearts the darkest of heart. After all, Paul himself is writing this, the one who was trying to kill Christians. And God showed up on the Emmaus road or the uh, Damascus road and, and shined his light literally on the apostle Paul. And he, he does it for all kinds of people. He shines his light and dispels the darkness of ignorance and fear and unbelief, removing the veil so that they see Christ and believe. And if that's happened to, to you, you should praise him today. You should be grateful today. Think about this. this is an echo of the book of Genesis, at the very beginning of Genesis. Let there be light, and light exists. He speaks it into existence. And here he says, let there be light, and a new creation exists. New life exists. What happens when that happens? He says, we see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see his glory. You see not only Genesis 1 here, but probably Habakkuk 2.20, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters covers the seas. You really have it all here in 2 Corinthians 4.6. You have creation, an echo of it. God speaks, light happens. We have redemption. We see God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we have new creation as we're anticipating it. Those who have seen the glory of God in the face of Christ, those who have become new creations, as Paul says in chapter 5, are waiting on the new creation, this already not yet dynamic. We have the knowledge of the glory of God as we see Christ by faith already, and one day the whole earth will be filled with this knowledge of the glory of God. It's a glorious thought. As D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, we only receive a very small part of our salvation in this life. The best is yet to come. And that is given to us. We are brought into this reality as God shines his light into our hearts and we see Christ and we embrace him. So my friends, all this is again back to verse one. How does this make us not lose heart? Well, because it's true. This is mercy. Because of the work of God in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we don't lose heart. And because God does this work of shining his light into people's hearts, we can proclaim the good news with confidence. Because God continues to do this again and again. We don't proclaim the gospel with confidence because we've been to seminary or because of our experiences, or because we're so good at it. We proclaim the gospel today with confidence because our God is still speaking. He's still shining his light into dark hearts, overcoming the darkness, and bringing about new creations. And so as we enter in this mission field this next week, let's enter it with these words on our mind in 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verse 1. And if you feel discouraged today in life, in ministry, let this word today, let his mercy today 
encourage and enliven your heart. Sometimes we wonder if what we're doing really matters, don't we? We don't always see results. Or sometimes we don't like the results we see. <laughs> but this text encourages us not to lose heart. You never know what may happen as the seed of God's word is planted as we speak the good news. And so let's stay encouraged, church. Stay encouraged in gospel ministry as we think deeply on the mercies of God, as we look to him for strength, as we experience warfare, as we do ministry. Let's keep preaching Christ. Let's keep praying for God to open up eyes. And let's keep anticipating the glory that will be revealed to us. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today for manifold mercies that you have shown to us. We're grateful today, those of us who claim the name of Christ, who, are, uh, who belong to Jesus Christ, thank you for shining the light into our dark souls, giving us the knowledge of you in the face of Jesus Christ. I pray we would never get over the wonder of your transforming work in our hearts. And I pray that the, the wonder of the gospel would enable us to not lose heart, not to give up, but to keep being faithful to what you've called us to. Lord Jesus, we pray you would make us faithful ambassadors of yours in this world. I pray even, as I mentioned, in this, the upcoming weeks and months as we are out and about in various places, Give us gospel opportunities, we pray. Give us boldness in those moments. Give us a confidence that you're at work, that it's not just about us, but that you are the Redeemer who is at work reclaiming a people for yourself from every tribe, people, language, and tongue. And so I pray that you would give us grace, give us humility, help us to be winsome, but help us not to be ashamed of the good news. And we pray these things today in Jesus' good name. Everybody said... Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.